Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Emma Strubel. Emma is a PhD student at UMass Amherst. Emma, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you, and I'm particularly excited to have an opportunity to talk to you now, uh, just a few days before you'll be defending your thesis. So the best of luck uh, on that. I'm Thank sure you. by the time this by the time this show's airs, uh, you will... Actually, it sounds like you'll be hiking someplace and uh, on your way to being a visiting scientist at Facebook AI Research uh, for a year before you start as an assistant professor in the Language Technologies Institute at Carnegie Mellon. So congratulations on all that, uh, first of all. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's very, very, lots of exciting changes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, how did you get to this place where you have so much opportunity like, and focused on AI? Like, what, Tell us a little bit about your path and your story. Yeah, so it was not at all on purpose. And actually, I have thoughts about that, which we can talk about if you want. Or okay. Not. <laughs> um, thoughts yeah, are always sorry. a good place to start. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even know that like sort of grad school or like getting a PhD was really a thing that I could do until undergrad. And I had professors who kind of like maybe pushed me in that direction. Um, I got involved in some undergraduate research. Um, but actually, when I applied to graduate school, I intended to study um, sort of like computational biology. So I was actually interested in studying and like understanding sort of, like computational power of biological systems. But my relationship with my uh, initial advisor did not work out. Um, and I was like really fortunate to just be introduced to Andrew McCallum, who's my my current PhD advisor, um, by someone else I knew in my PhD program. Um, and then I started working with him, and uh, I actually just like found that I really enjoyed the work. So, what department are you in? The CS department, or? Yeah, it's technically the College of Information and Computer Sciences. When I joined, it was actually the Computer Science Department, but we've grown a lot. Um, and that was also my, yeah, my undergraduate degree was in computer science and like a minor in math. And I also took some biology classes and stuff like this. Cause I do, I like biology a lot. Okay, cool. Also at Amherst? Uh, nope. I actually went to the university of Maine. Um, oh, I'm wow. from Maine, so yeah. How do you kind of describe your, your primary research interests nowadays? I'd say like the overall goal of my research is I want to build like I want to bring state-of-the-art NLP systems to like actual practitioners who actually want to use them. And I actually think there's like kind of like a large disconnect here between, you know, people who are doing like state-of-the-art NLP research and sort of like chasing these like high accuracies on these benchmark data sets. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but if you take these models that get really high accuracy on some benchmark data set, um, like, and then run them on your like actual data, <laughs> like yeah. your actual documents or whatever, like that accuracy tends to go way down. Um, and then similarly, I think people like the, the most accurate systems tend to be uh, like also the slowest <laughs> oftentimes, sort of like the biggest models that take the most computation. So I guess like two angles of my work have been um, you know, developing machine learning models that are as efficient as possible. So trying to get that state of the art accuracy, but requiring like much less computation and then also developing models that are going to be robust so that we can train them on like the annotated data that we have, but hopefully those same models will also perform well on like data from many different sources. And when you think about practitioners, are you thinking about any particular domain or are you kind of tackling it broadly? Yeah, I mean, I'd say generally like 
I hope that my research will apply to um, practitioners like kind of from any domain. That's, that's the hope. Um, I do. Um, so specifically, I've worked with collaborators in material science, uh, which has been really cool. So um, so they're interested in being able to extract like recipes for new materials, essentially, from the literature. Um, and so I've been working with them to try to develop models that that can do that. And it's been really, really interesting. Oh, interesting. So that use case is the the literature has the recipes in it, but it's in English, if that's what you... Exactly. That, a, a, if that's the language you're studying in, B, if that's what you can call what's written in material yeah. science academic journal particles. And yeah, you're trying to, that like, I can't understand. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so you're trying to capture from there uh, some representation of what the recipe is. Yeah, exactly. Going from sort of the unstructured, it is English, yeah, research article text to like some structured representation that's like, these are the material precursors, then, you know, you heat them for this amount of time and then uh, like dry them and add this other thing in. And then you get this result that has these properties. Uh-huh. So then you can, once you have that information, you can kind of like analyze it at a large scale to like possibly like our, our dream goal would be to like be able to generate new material recipes, like given some target material, generating the recipe, because uh-huh. basically that's done through like trial and error research in like a lab right now. So it's a very slow and error prone process. Uh, awesome. It's a fun application because it has, um, you know, this is like how we're going to develop like sustainable energy, right? Like these are like the materials that are used for like solar cells and stuff like this. So mm-hmm. it's a fun project. You kind of describe this problem of, you know, having these state of the art results in academic literature and practitioners not being able to use them. And you, you're primarily focused on, it sounds like kind of the, I don't know, the, the general generalizability of the results, but it also kind of speaks to like a whole, you know, repeatability in machine learning research kind of issue as well. Are you tackling that? Uh, I'm not yet, but I actually have been thinking about doing something like that, like sort of similar to this energy and policy and policy considerations paper, uh-huh. uh, which I guess we haven't necessarily talked about yet. Um, <laughs> but we will. <laughs> yeah, but we will. Yeah, yeah. So that's something I haven't tackled yet, but I actually was thinking about um, like sort of like a doing an analysis of like, well, I guess I was thinking about statistical significance in particular, which is kind mm-hmm. of like a related issue. So like in NLP, we don't usually measure significance of our results. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of like issues with people reporting the max number out of many random seeds. And then it's hard to repeat mm-hmm. these experiments. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think that's like a really interesting, interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, since you uh, you spilled the beans, you introduced the, <laughs> the topic that we're going to be talking about. This, Sorry. Uh, no, no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. So this is a paper that you, it's a pretty recent paper, at least according to the, the most recent one that's up on Archive. Uh, it was this month, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually haven't presented it at the conference yet. Um, so <laughs> okay. it's like the speed of, of research these days. Yep. And, and so the paper is called Energy and Policy Considerations for Deep Learning in NLP. And what conference are you presenting it at? Um, it'll be ACL. So it's the uh, annual conference of the Association for Computational Linguistics. This is like one of the top like international NLP conferences. Um, it's in Florence in July. Oh, nice. That's a good one to go to. Yeah. Well, I think it's like peak tourist season. So like, I don't know if it's like totally the best time to go there, but we'll see. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, why don't you... Tell us a little bit about this paper. What, what were your goals in writing it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, sort of, I talked about how uh, 
like one of the focuses of my research has been developing these efficient models. And so the motivation for a lot of that research is um, basically that we want, you know, that we even want machine learning models to be efficient and that we want them to be efficient because we care about the cost in terms of money, but also in terms of like the cost of the environment, because just bigger models require more energy, which has more like CO2 output, basically. So that was, has been our like motivation in a few of the papers that I've written. Um, and, but then I realized that no one has really like uh, quantified this, especially not in NLP. So there's been like, but yeah, I don't know of any work actually really quantifying this in terms of like the carbon footprint of training these NLP models. Um, and at the same time, there's been this um, surge recently in NLP um, or this, I guess, trend of training like bigger and bigger models on more and more data. And um, these models are performing really well, like getting really high accuracies. Um, but they're just like the computational resources required to train them are like enormous, like such that, you know, a researcher like me, who's not currently at like a big company like Facebook or Google, like cannot afford and doesn't, and I don't even have access to like the hardware to train these models. So we're talking Um, about like language, language models like GPT-2 or, okay, Google just a couple of days ago, uh, I think released ExcelNet, uh, and some folks did, uh, kind of back of the envelope analysis that uh, showed, concluded that it costs $245,000 to train that model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not that's accessible. Exactly, yeah, no, not really. Yeah, that's <laughs> like a pretty large portion of like an NSF grant. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah. So basically we were inspired by, yeah, the fact that we didn't see people quantifying this. And like, I think there's been sort of like an exponential growth in the actual like energy and computation requirements of models recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to, to quantify that. And then also, I guess, talk about some conclusions based on our, our results. Yeah. And so one of the things that, uh, that you do is kind of compare the estimated emissions for training some of these models with kind of the things that we usually associate with you know, environmental damage or at least emissions like air travel and, you know, car travel, things like that. What did you find there? Yeah. So there's like a number of numbers. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> um, I guess one thing is like training one of these models in this particular way that's like very sort of computationally intensive. Uh, so this is like training uh, a machine translation model using this new technique called neural architecture search required basically multiple, let's see, what is it? Three, four, I'm not good at doing math in my head, but multiple times the entire carbon footprint of like a car in its lifetime, including fuel and manufacturing, um, which is ridiculous. And that's like, you know, that's even more carbon footprint than like the average American life, Mm -hmm. I guess. So I should say one of the, one of the things we did is we, um, we analyzed like the total carbon footprint of, um, basically my last paper, like the research and development required to, you know, develop the, the last model that I published. Okay. Um, and that was like, just like the carbon footprint of that, of the work that I did, like easily like doubled or tripled uh, my personal carbon footprint last year, which I found mm. like super alarming. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Were those the two models or scenarios that you were primarily primarily looking at that your uh, NLP pipeline and this kind of transformer neural architecture search model? Yeah, I mean, I'd say we looked at a variety of these, um, like these popular pre-trained language models. Um, so we looked at 
uh, like Elmo, BERT, GPT-2. Um, and then, yeah, we were interested in looking at neural architecture search in particular because uh, I think like the, yeah, I mean, it's a very uh, computation, it's a very computation hungry approach. And I think like the, uh, like the resulting benefit is relatively small. Um, and so I had a feeling it would be kind of like a drastic number. So I wanted to compute it and kind of maybe encourage people to be a little bit more responsible about uh, like sort of like these brute force techniques. Yeah, I've had a number of conversations with folks and seen like blog posts uh, where folks try to capture, uh, in this case, the case I'm thinking of, the like incremental cost of training a model, you know, per incremental percentage accuracy benefit or business benefit and like try to encourage people to think about that, you know, as they're devoting resources to building out these models. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not something that I hear people talking about a lot. Um, and I, I haven't come across any particularly like rigorous way of doing it or, you know, frameworks for doing it or anything like that. And I'm wondering in, in your research, did you, did, were you somehow able to like, you know, really get into that kind of the incremental carbon emissions per incremental benefit and accuracy or something like that? Did you compare that across different techniques? That's a great question. We didn't, but um, people should totally do that. <laughs> but I'm out of here. <laughs> I mean, I would be happy to do it too. If I just have to, you know. By the time, yeah. Um, one, of our, one of our sort of like takeaways from this paper that we write about is um, basically that authors should report numbers that make it easier to do that comparison. And so mm -hmm. I think there's some pretty straightforward um, things that people could compute for like any machine learning model that would like allow us to compare sort of like like how much computation is required basically to get that accuracy. And then it would be like super easy to just yeah compute those numbers. So if people could compute. Um, or report just like gigaflops to convergence. Mm -hmm. That's like a pretty easy thing. Like there's like a couple papers where they've reported that, like when they're trying to compare and show that their model is like better. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if that was just like a standard thing we reported alongside, you know, accuracy or whatever other metric, I think that would be like really, um, it's like not that hard and um, it would just really allow us to make that comparison directly. Um, and similarly, like something that's a little bit, less straightforward, but that would be really helpful in a number of ways is reporting um, sort of like sensitivity to hyperparameters. Um, yeah. Like a lot, yeah, a lot of this energy use actually comes from sort of like how wasteful we are in terms of, um, you know, tuning these neural network models that, you know, notoriously require like a lot of finessing and tuning. And that tends to be like, if you want to train it on a new data set, you know, you have to do some kind of tuning, but we don't, we do like a really bad job. This goes back to um, what you mentioned about reproducibility. I think we do a really bad job of like actually being really precise about how much of that tuning happens um, and how, and then how much is required. Like there's like, you know, there's a lot that goes into development of a model and development of a new technique. When you, when you think about this, are you thinking about it like from a, a pipeline perspective and Hey, you know, this is an iterative process and we're, you know, kind of playing with all these hyperparameters uh, to actually get to a model? Or are you thinking about it like, I don't know if this actually makes any sense, but like somehow dropout is more expensive than, you know, something else from a, 
you know, technique perspective during training? Oh, that's super interesting. No, I wasn't thinking about that. But dropout is like more, probably more expensive than like some other technique, just because it's like way less sample efficient. Like if you train with dropout versus I bet there's other like more direct regularization approaches. Mm -hmm. I was not talking about that. But if you want to collaborate on (laughs) (laughs) something else for someone else to figure out. Yeah. (laughs) That's, That's great. Yeah, people should like listen to your podcast for like cool research ideas. Yeah, no, I was thinking more just in terms of like, if you want to take some like published model and then apply it to your data to sort of like a new domain, I think it's really hard to tell like how much tuning is actually going to be required. And people just don't report that. Um, yeah. So it's both kind of like not super reproduced. You know, you'll say, oh, we did a grid search of these things. But like, eh, I think it's not, um, it's not actually that straightforward always. You know, characterizing the cost of just inefficiencies in the way we do this stuff like you know imagining there's you know some set of techniques that you know people still do all the time that are like far from you know best practice or state of the art that you know probably just like throw you know tons of co2 emissions out there for not like have you given any thought to anything like that that's interesting i mean so this is not exactly what you said, but something that came to mind um, is sorry, I think people are very eager to use like deep learning when they can <laughs> definitely get away with like just like a single like logistic regression. <laughs> so that that comes to mind as like something where, um, yeah, like at, at the cost, yeah, <laughs> people yeah. want their their uh, technology to sound cool and to use the coolest stuff. Um, but yeah, I think for you know for some yeah, for many tasks, you, you don't really need like a big, deep, fancy model. You can just do like classification, like a yeah shallow classification. It'll work fine. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, all of these, all of these questions are kind of interrelated. And I guess that goes back to the fundamental contribution of this work, which is, hey, we really need to be thinking about how much it costs us to get this incremental, you know, percentage of you know, p- performance by whatever metric you're using. Absolutely. Like something like neural architecture search, where it's kind of, I guess it's going back to the reproducibility thing. Like, you know, take G- GPT-2, right? A bunch of people have reported like trying to reproduce G- GPT-2 and uh, OpenAI hasn't said everything that you need to do to get the exact kind of results that they got. Yeah. Like, do you... You know, if you're trying to benchmark these things, do you even know like how close you are to the actual cost to produce their model? Does that make any Uh, sense? Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting question. I think if I understand what you're saying correctly, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, do we actually know what goes into training these? (laughs) Like, are our estimates even reasonable? Like, did we, uh, Well, I guess, you know, so part of the question, maybe taking a step back, like to train the the neural architecture search based model, did uh, presumably you actually implemented that as opposed to determine the cost analytically or no? Yeah, no. So, yeah, I will describe to you our uh, methodology. Okay. With the exception of GPT-2, actually, um, we... We basically took, so all the models we analyzed had open source code. Mm-hmm. We took that code, um, we like just had it perform training for like up to a day. 
And then mm -hmm. we sampled like the actual energy draw of the GPU or GPUs and the CPUs and the, um, the main memory. So we're making the assumption that like the main energy draw from the computer is going to be from like the, this comp the computational hardware essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and then we extrapolated that based on uh, the amount of time and the hardware um, as reported in the paper that they used to train the model. Ah, okay. Yeah, so we didn't, because it would have taken, I mean, as I said, we <laughs> at least $245,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. To like replicate the entire thing. But I figured this is like a reasonable uh, way to estimate it. And I'm happy to talk more about like how we then convert that to carbon and stuff like this, because it's a little bit like, you just have to make a lot of assumptions along the way, but we mm -hmm. figured it's like, we tried to make reasonable assumptions and it's like, we think our estimates are like ballpark reasonable. Did you run it for the day on the exact hardware that they said they used if they said they, if they reported the hardware that they used or did you have to extrapolate to that as well? Yeah, we had to extrapolate to that as well, um, but we did make an effort to use hardware that's like fairly similar. So like, um, so the GPUs that we used um, basically have a, have the same. So like one of the metrics like that's reported for a GPU is sort of like its maximum power draw. And so the maximum power draw of the GPUs that we were using uh, is the same as the maximum power draw of the GPUs they were using. So okay, uh, yeah, I think it's like probably the yeah power used is similar, and they're they're not like incredibly different. They're like you know similar age GPUs and stuff like this. But yeah, it wasn't in most cases. It was not the exact same hardware. Uh, and then in here you talk a little bit about um, the ultimate source of the energy, like whether it's renewable versus gas, coal. Uh, etc. Like, how did that? How were you able to fit that into this model? Do the various like data center providers, cloud providers, do they report on this stuff? Yeah, so they're not super transparent about it. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, and so these numbers, we got these numbers from. Well, so for the cloud providers, we got the numbers from a 2017. Uh, white paper that Greenpeace did, and it seemed like they surveyed the companies and got these numbers somehow from them. Okay. Um, yeah, and so and then so in our computation, we used um, basically the mapping from like kilowatt hours of energy to um, carbon produced or like CO two produced, um, as provided by the U.S. EPA. Like that's like the average uh, for power consumed in the United States. Okay. Um, and so if you look at the breakdown of AWS's energy, and so like obviously like where the mapping from um, like electricity to carbon footprint is very dependent on like these sources. So if it's from renewable sources, it maps to zero. And then if it's from nuclear, you know, it maps to less than from gas or coal, like much less. Um, so yeah, but so if you look at the actual, the breakdown of energy resources as of 2017 of Amazon AWS, it like pretty closely mirrors the breakdown from the US um, and AWS is like the largest cloud provider. Mm -hmm. So um, for that reason, we thought that it was a like a pretty like reasonable estimate or mapping. Mm -hmm. um, so since coming out with this work, people from some of these companies have contacted me and let me know that these numbers are out of date and they're doing better now. Um, so huh. yeah, we're, we're considering, <laughs> yeah, we're considering doing an update like in the fall Okay. Uh, or something with, with more up-to-date numbers. And of course, and uh, something that we don't like address uh, a ton in the paper is that a lot of companies are also moving more towards, um, actually many of them, I know like Google at least, um, is like 100% renewable 
in terms of, I guess, I don't want to say renewable, but they're, yeah, basically they buy carbon offsets to make up for like energy in their cloud that does not come from renewable sources. Um, so that's good. That's like better than nothing, but it's also not the same as like using actual renewable energy. Yeah, but they are relative to the other providers given this 2017 data kicking butt on the renewable <laughs> 56% for them relative to 32 for Microsoft and 17 for AWS. Yeah, Pretty definitely. Good. It seems like they really care about that. And um, also like TPUs are actually, so all the numbers that we were able to compute were for GPU just because we don't, we aren't able to get the power draw of TPUs. Um, okay. But um, I do think TPUs are much more, I mean, because they're better at doing this computation, they just like don't take as much time to do the same amount of training. Mm-hmm. Um, so also a technology developed by Google that I think, yeah, is just like much more energy efficient than GPUs. So that's nice. Although it's a little sad that it's like, uh, you know, this, I guess they're all proprietary technologies, but GPUs feel, I mean, sorry, TPUs feel a little bit more proprietary than GPUs because I can't like buy one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like probe the energy usage and stuff like this. Oh, right, right, right. So you, uh, so you could not include XLNet in this paper. You just don't have enough information because it's so, all the data they provided was TPU-based. You'd have to do a lot more extrapolation than even you've done here. Yeah, exactly. So for like the BERT model, for example, this was also originally trained, you know, at Google on only TPUs. But since then, like NVIDIA, uh, like retrained it on GPUs. So we were able to use like those numbers but yeah, for, yeah, exactly. For XLNet, it's like unclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly what the footprint would be. Um, I guess if I, ma- if I made like a follow-up update, maybe like a blog post or something, I would try to get some, hopefully if it's not too proprietary, try to get some like energy draw information for TPU so that we could do that estimate. Right. Because I think it'd be really interesting to actually see like how they compare concretely. This work is very specific to... Uh, NLP, have you, you know, do you have any specific thoughts on like how it applies to, I mean, I guess the methodology is pretty general and what you're really saying here is that we should be doing this. And that's another exercise for someone else is to apply it to <laughs> computer vision models and, and the like. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, um, some other people have done work, um, comparing, let's see. Um, in, in computer vision in particular, you know, it's like a really popular area. Let's see, what were they looking at? So I don't know of anyone doing the mapping to like carbon footprint, but there are people who have compared sort of like the energy use, like the energy draw required by the GPU for using sort of like different neural network layers in, uh, you know, like these big image classification networks and stuff like mm-hmm. this, um, or like, you know, different batch sizes and stuff like this. Yeah. So there was some work they didn't do, like you could take, I think their numbers and then do like that extra step of mapping the carbon footprint. I do think like the NLP models, especially these like, you know, notoriously enormous pre-trained language models yeah. are just like some of the most uh, like energy hungry models in machine learning. I would say like the other, the other area that's probably just like using insane amounts of energy would be um, the work at like OpenAI on doing like training uh, you know, training reinforcement learning models to do mm-hmm. like play various games. I think that's going to be like probably, I mean, I think the technique for training those is like kind of similar to neural architecture search and that you're actually training like a ton of different models. And and you kind of, early in our conversation, there's a, a hint of judgment that, you know, 
the rep, the incremental gains that we're seeing, you know, going from, you know, one model to the next Elmo to BERT to GPT-2 to XLNet, like doesn't necessarily justify the increase in training costs. Like, did you try to quantify that specifically? Yeah, so I think the, the question you asked earlier kind of would have quantified that. Like if we had just computed you know, like a ratio. Yeah, of, yeah. Yeah, like the difference in, you know, compute required versus like the increase in accuracy. We totally should have done that. Like I think that would be nice because a lot of these models do evaluate on sort of like some of the same metrics. Yeah, so we didn't really quantify that except, yeah, that we noted for the neural architecture search that they get an increase of like 0.1 blue score, which is really not a lot <laughs> right? <laughs> on like English and German machine translation. Uh, yeah. At the cost of, we say like at least $150,000 in on-demand compute time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I think, yeah, that sort of that approach in particular, is just like a very brute force approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have like a little bit of judgment about <laughs> <laughs> right. that. I mean, I think like the gains. So I didn't make that up. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's true. Elmo versus BERT versus XLNet. You know, I do think that they are, like, there are actually pretty substantial differences in accuracy between those models on, you know, these, like, standard NLP benchmarks. And I think that that's, that is important to do. Um, something like the neural architecture search, I feel like maybe there's, like, uh, like some more, like, well-thought-out research that we could be doing um, to, like, not just do a brute force search on architectures to find, like, really small increase on, like, a single language pair type thing. <laughs> is there a counter argument or devil's advocate thing here that says like really the innovation in all these models is uh, in their use in transfer learning? And if you think about that, the cost to train these models is amortized across lots and lots of users. And similarly, the incremental performance gains accrue across lots and lots of users. And so it's worth it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I am definitely not saying, you know, I'm an NLP researcher. One of the models <laughs> that I analyzed is like my model. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to like stop doing research or something. Like I'm going to continue working on these models. Right, right. Um, and I do think like Elmo and Bird and like, I guess now XLNet, like, uh, yeah, I mean, the accuracy increases on these core NLP tasks resulting from these models is, like, awesome. It's, like, really cool to be, like, in this field at this time. Yeah. Um, so I'm, like, by no means saying we shouldn't be doing this research and we shouldn't be using these models. And so I totally agree with you that, um, yeah, that's, like, a great sort of, like, counterargument that, um, especially these models in particular, um, you know, they're sort of, like, pre-trained on this large amount of like uh, data, they don't require like explicit supervision. So you can like kind of easily collect this large amount of data and then just train on it. Um, and then these models are like really applicable in a lot of different, yeah, you can sort of provide them as input in a lot of different tasks. Um, yeah, I mean, that's totally true. I still think it's important to characterize like, <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. costs, um, especially, yeah. So like another one of our conclusions is sort of like in terms of like access to computation resources. So I do think if you want to use one of these models in a new domain, so they tend to be trained on like web crawls and like news, corpora, Wikipedia, and stuff like that. that kind of thing. Wikipedia, yeah. And so I still think like the, so I'm sure if you initialize some model, let's say that you wanted to run on these like materials science journal articles mm-hmm. uh, or like whatever, some like, yeah, research articles in a very specific domain. I think if you, um, you know, if you initialize your model with one of these models, like probably it will help. But what you really want to do is train one of these models on a corpus of that data. 
um, which is actually something that we did in our research. <laughs> and are you um, making a distinction between training and tuning? Yeah, so we fine tune. So that's true. You don't need to. Yeah, given the model, um, it's stuff. It's already learned a lot of sort of stuff about. Let's see, if you care about English, it's learned a lot of stuff about mm-hmm. you know, English that is sort of um, yeah domain independent. I guess it probably is domain independent. Um, yeah, so that's a good point. You only need to fine tune it, um, but it still takes like a lot to fine tune it. Basically, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So sorry. What I was saying is, um, yeah, basically, like in terms of like funding and stuff like this, um, yeah, just developing and using these models can still be pretty expensive for mm-hmm. for like academic researchers or even you know just um, you know smaller companies and smaller groups who want to use this technology but just don't have a ton of money or a ton of resources. Um, so it would be nice to have sort of like public resources or something so that people have more access. Any other uh, takeaways or conclusions that are, are worth noting or exploring uh, in this paper? Um, yeah, so there, there was one other thing that we talked about uh, in the paper, which uh, which I guess I, I maybe touched on a little bit earlier. Um, but like I think that we already have. So like when I analyzed like the model that I trained, um, a lot of the cost was just like yeah, doing this like tuning and development and stuff, basically doing these like just grid search as a hyperparameter. So like, just like considering like every pair of, or every like combination of like K hyperparameters, um, which is like a really dumb approach. That's really like wasteful. And we have techniques, you know, like Bayesian hyperparameter search and other stuff that are, that are better. Um, but at least in my experience, like most people are not using them. So I know Google has like an internal tool that does this. So people do do it at Google, but um, yeah, their tool is like not open source, for example. Um, so I think like another thing that would be great is if these big um, like deep learning toolkits that like everyone is using, like TensorFlow and PyTorch, um, et cetera, you know, made more of an effort to build in um, these more energy efficient approaches uh, that already exist. So it's like yeah. easier for people to do more efficient uh, modeling. That would be great. Nice. Shout out to our friends at SIGOPT uh, that does this for Bayesian optimization. But it's, I think, another take on it. Like they, you know, go in and are talking to people about like performance and, you know, making better models. And this is a whole different uh, take on it and looking at the efficiency of of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, that's, I mean, for me, that's like a big gain of, um, yeah, like Bayesian searches. yeah, just like being able to actually search the space intelligently. Um, right, right. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, in terms of energy use rather than just like the accuracy. Right. Uh, and I think it's often like easier to show that, at least in my research, something I've enjoyed is um, like rather than trying to like make some number higher, I tend to be just trying to like match some number, but like make the model more efficient. And I think it's actually a lot easier <laughs> mm. <laughs> to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because like everyone's trying to make the number higher. It's at a certain point, it can be challenging. Cool. Well, Emma, thanks so much for taking the time to share what you're working on. It's very cool stuff and, uh, and an important paper for sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm really glad because I think like, uh, yeah, it's a really important thing for people to think about. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you invited me on the podcast to talk about this so that we can get some more visibility and more people thinking about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, I guess one one more thing that I would like to say is that um, there's been kind of like a lot of discussion about this paper online and we want to like encourage that discussion and provide, you know, like a place for that discussion to happen. Um, so we were going to upload the paper on open review, which is like a forum where you have like a paper and then you can have like discussion by people. Um, so I'm planning on doing that like today or tomorrow. So oh, maybe we awesome. can think or something, but yeah, hopefully if people want to like discuss more, I'm um, hoping to provide a forum for that to happen. 
Okay, well, yeah, shoot us the link and we'll include it in the uh, show notes page. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Emma. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.